0: The opinions expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of History, Carleton University, its staff, faculty, or students. You're listening to Patterson 406, an occasional series of podcasts from the Department of History at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Hi, my name is Sean Graham. I'm a professor in the History Department at Carleton, and this fall I've been responsible for organizing the Shannon Lectures in History. The Shannon Lectures are a series of thematically linked public lectures offered by the department each autumn and made possible through the Shannon donation. A major gift from Lois M. Long in memory of her parents, James Buchanan Long and Ida Mae Davidson. The theme for the 2018 Shannons is bad archaeology, about how our love and desire to know about the past through archaeology and material culture can go off the rails. Our first speaker is Dr. Donna Yates who is lecturer in Antiquities Trafficking and Art Crime at the Scottish Centre for Crime and Justice Research at the University of Glasgow. Her talk is called Ancient Art and Modern Crime and was first delivered on October 12, 2018. In 2011, a visitor walked into the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts and stole a 2,500-year-old relief of a guard's head valued at over 1.2 million. In July of 2018, the New York Supreme Court ordered that the sculpture which had been seized by the District Attorney of New York from a London-based antiquities dealer be returned to Iran. How the artifact was stolen from the famous archaeological site of Persepolis and ended up in Canada, and what happened afterwards when it was stolen again gives us a glimpse of the dark underbelly of the art world. This is where high culture meets smuggling, desire, greed, and white-collared crime.
1: So I, I'm an imposter too, so I'm an archaeologist, but I'm in a criminology department, so I'm in the Scottish Center for Crime and Justice Research. And I think there's a lot of us imposters out there, and I'm not sure if that makes us bad archaeologists or makes us extra good archaeologists. Um, but today I am going to be talking, um, well, the talk's called Ancient Art and Modern Crime, How Antiquities, Stolen Antiquities End Up in Our Most Respected Museums. And I'm going to talk a little bit, especially near the end, about white-collar actors and a tiny sneeze at what white-collar crime is. And I'm going to think about how some of the the characters in the story I'm going to tell you fit into that mold and how you can bring criminological ideas into such uh, cases to get some information. But really, this is an excuse to tell you a really crazy story and a really interesting case that, however strange it may seem, actually portrays some, some very simple truths about the illicit antiquities trade. And unfortunately, some very simple truths about the kinds of objects that are in museums. And um, I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm at the stage of pregnancy where I get out of breath very quickly, easily. So I'm going to have to take some breaks, especially projecting, um, to, and drink some water. But um, hopefully, you'll find this interesting. And hopefully, you'll, you'll have some questions for me, but also just some questions for yourselves and maybe some questions for museums in the art market. What's that? Would you look at your- no, I'll be in. So, the first part of this talk is called A Daring Museum Heist or Just Some Yoga Hoser. That'll make sense in a second. So, it's September 3rd, 2011. And on that day, a man walked into the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. While it was open, just walked right on in and walked out with a 2,500-year-old relief of a Persian guard. It's this one that you see right here. Broad daylight, he's on the camera, no one stopped him, so there you go. Interestingly enough, eight weeks later, he walked into the same museum again and walked out with this Roman statue. So, pretty bad situation, that doesn't look very good. That's, that's the guy, if anybody recognizes him, <laughs> haven't found him yet, contact the police. Um, but the, the, interestingly, the museum didn't report the theft until the 7th of November, 2011. Um, it's unclear why there was a, a, a span of time there, that hasn't been fully explained. They told their insurance company that insures their art in December. And then finally, in February of 2012, the public was notified. And the reason that uh, that has been stated that the, the public wasn't told about this sooner was they didn't want to compromise the police investigation. But uh, around that time in, in, in February 2012, these images were released and um, the public was asked for any information. Moving a little bit forward, um, the, the art insurance company um, paid the museum out for the missing objects. And they got a valuation for these objects from an antiquities dealer, and which, who placed them as being valued at $1.2 million. And most of that value was in this relief right here, the Persian relief. So um, the museum got that money, the, the art insurance company had to deal with it, and they put up what they called a substantial reward for the return of these objects, or information leading to the return of the objects, and they released this kind of wanted poster around. So interesting stuff. There's the numbers to call again if you have any information. <laughs> um, but fast forward a little bit more to the 3rd of September, 2013. Um, the police raid an Edmonton home, and they find the relief, the really expensive ones, sitting on the shelf surrounded by crystals, some Star Wars figurines, mm-hmm. some toys, and this guy. So this guy is a yoga teacher um, who had the relief in his possession, but he didn't know it was real. He absolutely didn't know it was real he was very confused when the police knocked on his door yes. so he claimed to and it seems to be truth um, that he bought the, the relief when he was visiting in Montreal for $1,400 remember this has been valued at over a million dollars and he said that he, he told the, the authorities that he, um, he really liked it, he thought it was really well made, he didn't really know it was real but that he felt it had come to him as part of his spiritual journey And because it was 2012, and this this is what he said, which was supposed to be the year of the Maya apocalypse, he felt that uh, everything was coming together and this was his thing. And um, in an experience much like I have had, um, his, his luggage when he was flying back to Edmonton was lost. And this relief was lost in his luggage, but they were able to return it to him, so there you go. And he said at various points he thought, oh, maybe I'll take this on Antiques Roadshow and see about it. Um, But a little bit later, he was interviewed in his home on a CBC News TV spot for something completely different. And the relief was behind him while he was talking. So he was on TV with the relief. And it seems like from that, somebody out there saw it and gave a tip to the police that, well, maybe you should check this guy's house. And to make things even weirder, um, somehow the reporting on this guy um, inspired the really weird Kevin Smith film, Yoga Hosers, which has like negative stars online and is absolutely terrible. But somehow that film, which is somehow about sausage Canadian Nazis called Brat Nazis made of bratwursts is inspired by this guy and what he said about this theft. Can't make this up. Great story, right? Well, when they raided this guy's house, they also found some drugs and stuff. So he got arrested. Um, <laughs> and they—they uh, they, he pled guilty to possession of stolen goods. Um, the, the drug charges were dropped, but he pled guilty to this really small char- charge of having this relief. And both his lawyers and the judge agreed that he didn't know it was stolen. But on the other hand, he didn't try very hard to find out if it was before he bought it. And on all accounts, including what the judge said, is basically, this is a very extraordinary case. Um, But uh, interestingly enough, the other stolen piece was never found, we still haven't found that. And the thief was never found, even though it seems like there'd be some really good leads on it. So there you go. Daring museum heist, probably not. Yoga hoser, maybe. But this isn't our case. This is not what we're talking about today. This is just your preamble. You've got this great art theft, but this isn't the interesting thing. So let's think about this week. We're fast forwarding flash This week, see, dated October 9th. Recovered Akhameneid, I say that wrong, relief goes on tour across Iran. So this relief, the one that was stolen from the Montreal Museum, that was recovered in Edmonton, is now in Iran for good. That's where it is. Um, And it's going on display, it went on display this week, and it's going on a tour of Iran. Well, that's a big change. How did it get to Iran? Well, maybe the better question is how did it get to Canada? Why was it even in Canada in the first place? And that's where our story starts. So, this is a story of discovery, destruction, privilege, and crime. It's going to reveal, hopefully, That the art market is really willing to pay fast and loose with our shared cultural heritage. That museums are not always the good guy. They they take on sometimes a more ambiguous role. We We like museums, I like museums, but sometimes they're in a very strange place that isn't necessarily good. And that some of our laws may actually allow white collar actors to aid, abet, and even get away with crimes. So now our real story is starting. We're going to call this the case of the Persian guard because that sounds nice and mysterious. I feel like it's a very Agatha Christie type of thing to do. And her husband was an archaeologist, so it totally works. So, history lost and found, plundered from Persepolis. So we're starting at the site of Persepolis in Iran. It's the capital of the Achaemenid Empire, and I say that wrong every time, I apologize. Um, the palaces there were built by Darius. It's a massive complex. This is an overhead view of it, just, just filled with amazing carvings and things. And the, the Persian guard that we're talking about is one of these guys, see right here. Um, he was, they were part of, well, he is a part of a line of guards that was at the tripylon part of the site, which means three gates. Um, part of the palace complex and this is actually a line of 80 guards 40 facing each direction it's massive 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 and he was one of those so these were not discovered by looters these were discovered by archaeologists in 1932 so up to that point this area was covered in sand and um, all of these objects were found in place so um, the, the the piece was found by archaeologist Ernst Hertzfeld of the Oriental Institute of Chicago And very importantly, this exact piece, the one that was in Canada, um, was excavated by archaeologists, it was photographed, and it was even restored. So the piece we're talking about is, uh, let's see, it's this one, yeah, it's that one. This was actually excavated on the ground, the archaeologists restored it, put it back, it looks good. And it was last photographed by archaeologists in 1935. And these years are important, 1932 and 1935. And very unfortunately, it was stolen that year. It was stolen in 1935. So just to show you, there you go. Here's our piece. Here's our piece. It's a bit blurry, but you can see damage on the sphere, damage on the sphere, little head damage, little head damage in this kind of shape here. So that's an ancient break. These ones, unfortunately, modern breaks from looters. This is an ancient break here. So definitely it's that piece. So like I said, it was stolen in in late 1935. And in March of 1936, the archaeologists at the site did report it stolen. They reported it stolen to the relevant ministry in Iran. They reported it stolen to Iran's attorney general. They reported it stolen to the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, And two other guards, I should say, were were taken at the same time. Multiple letters were written. Images were supplied with the letters. There are records that this thing was there and was stolen. And at the time, Iran was actually actively trying to prevent this kind of theft. It had strong laws and it was going after people who were stealing stuff from Persepolis. Right at the same time, apparently, there were some Japanese tourists who took some things from Persepolis, and they were caught, and stuff was gotten back. And the District Attorney's Office of New York, who you're going to see is very important in this case, has called this a classic theft. There's no nuance here. This stuff was stolen. And again, this is is the photograph that was taken that proves it was stolen. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it's either this break, but I think it's actually this one. So here's, here's where the heads were, no longer there. Very unfortunate. So the guard disappeared. It was not seen again for another 15 years, but we know it was smuggled. So how do we know that? Well, like I said, Iran had really strong laws at the time, it still does. So in 1930, Iran declared that all ancient objects were property of the state, meaning you can't remove things from ancient sites, and you can't export them without a license. That's 1930. Remember, our guy was found in 1932, and we have photographic proof that was in the country in 1935. Just like I said, we have proof it was there. And we also know that an export permit was never issued. Iran maintains an export permit, was never issued for this object, and indeed, there's no feasible scenario where it would be. There's no feasible scenario where Iran suddenly pulls this thing off, sends an export permit, and then pretends like it doesn't know that they were the ones that removed it and exported it. because again, this is there's there's officials in Iran looking for these pieces. there's This wasn't exported legally. So it was stolen and it was smuggled. I'm really driving this home that it was stolen because it very classically is. It was taken from its owner in an illegal way. And we have photographic proof. So fast forward 15 years. On 7 December 1950, antiquities dealer Paul Mallon offered the guard to F. Cleveland Morgan of the Art Association of Montreal for sale. We have no idea how Malin got the piece. There's 15 years gap. We have no information at all. And Morgan, of course, never asked. He just liked it. He didn't ask where this came from, didn't ask for an export permit, didn't ask for anything at all. Malin did tell Morgan that it came specifically from the, a, a tripylon or tripylon stairs at Persepolis, very specifically. So kind of ask the questions: how did he know that? Was he talking to the criminals who smuggled it? He had a bit of information he probably shouldn't have, and he passed that on to Morgan. But somehow, that didn't cause Morgan to think, hmm, maybe I should send a letter to Iran and ask, ask for an export permit. Nope. So Morgan paid just over $1,000 in 1951 dollars, so it's it's quite a bit of money for the guard. Um, And then he instantly, just a month later, donated it to the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. So he was specifically buying it to donate it. And the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts also did not ask for any proof that this was being legally sold. Didn't ask for an export permit, didn't ask for an explanation, didn't ask really where it came from. They were just happy to get this thing. Um, The Montreal Museum of Fine Arts only published a picture of it once. They never really released this on postcards or photographs or anything like that. And it wasn't actually permanently displayed until 2004. It was kind of on and off um, exhibitions. So then, okay, you know the stolen recovery story that happened in 2011, the Yoga Hoser guy had it and so on. You know that story. But what happened after that? It kind of seems when that story ends that the the piece is supposed to go back to the museum and it goes back on display. Well, that isn't actually what happened because remember the insurance company paid out. So now the insurance company is the owner of this piece. So that's AXA Art Insurance. But the museum actually had the option of rebuying the piece by returning the insurance money. Um, So if they wanted to, they could say, okay, yes, we want our piece back. Um, Here's the insurance money that was paid out. But that's not what the museum chose. They chose to keep the money. So it's now owned by AXA Art Insurance. The question I ask for you is, did the museum pass on a hot potato to somebody else? Currently, I think the Museum of Fine Arts is probably feeling like they did the right thing, keeping their a million something dollars rather than getting the piece back. See what you guys think in a bit. Well, AXA wanted to sell the piece because they had, just, they had paid out over a million for it. They wanted to recoup some of their loss, but they specifically wanted to sell the piece outside of Canada, where they felt like they could reach a better market. They could get more consumers who would pay more money for it. So they applied um, for a cultural property export permit to send it to the United Kingdom, which has a, a notoriously strong lo- art market. I'll put it like that. But by law, the Canadian Cultural Property Export Review Board had to approve this export. So you can head to their website, you can read what they're all about, um, but, but basically they get to decide whether um, objects that are in Canada are of, quote, outstanding significance and national importance, um, and thus, if, if it is that, they, they are able to not issue permits and, allow, and not allow those things to leave Canada. Um, so they didn't want to approve this. They didn't actually want this, this, this thing to leave Canada because it's a very significant piece. And quite frankly, you're not going to get another piece of Persepolis. That's not going to happen. Um, so the, there was a back and forth, lots of documents arguing and so on. Um, but eventually, with a couple of stipulations, the permit was granted. It was granted for the object to leave Canada. But during that back and forth, the piece was actually sold in Canada to a London-based dealer named Rupert Weiss, who just happened to be the exact same guy who gave the initial valuation of this piece when it was stolen. Um, so he's the guy that appraised it, and remember, he appraised it at around uh, one million one hundred eighty dollars and he bought it while it was still in Canada. So there was a lot of push for him to to try to get this thing out of Canada sell it, and ultimately in July of 2016, it was sent to London with an export permit. And just as a side note here, this is kind of a part of the the case that's really kind of dark and dubious, because there were some interesting, shady, backdoorish dealings. Maybe they weren't shady. Basically, it's unclear exactly how the situation was wrangled, that they they got this permit, and um, this guy was the buyer. So uh, as part of the export permit deal, a Canadian museum had the ability to offer a fair price for the piece. And Weiss, the guy who now owned it, was able to finagle a a situation where it was declared that $3 million was the fair price, even though he had only just paid $1.18 million. And that's what he had valued it as for the insurance payout. So something's weird there. Something's a bit dodgy. And basically no mu- Canadian museum could afford that. So it just seems like a bit of a stitch-up, right? That, that he, he basically got what he wanted. But this is all a bit shady and fuzzy. I'm not implying anything. I'm not calling anybody anything. This is being recorded. But <laughs> there's, there's more questions to ask here. There's more investigation that needs to be looked at. This is, this is where we start seeing little bits of this kind of white-collar, action that is a bit dubious but we'll get to that so there we go the piece is in London so let's look at our dealer so so Rupert though, though what I'm going to say here I should say that the the dealer absolutely disputes he disputes that this is this is the um, how how things happen in the, the turn of events but I should say my information is coming from uh, court documents that were supplied by the district attorney's office of New York. So I'm going mostly based on that. I've read um, the, the, the dealer's lawyer's response to this, and um, I, for aspects of it that I know personally, um, I find it at best misleading. Let's, let's say that. I feel that certain things the dealer is saying are misleading about <laughs> what actually happened. So I'm mostly sticking to the district attorney's um, side of things, which I think is fair. But, but basically, um, when, when he was about to buy the piece, the dealer didn't really investigate it. He didn't investigate the background, didn't ask the questions, sent a couple emails, that's about it, before he spent um, over a million dollars on it. So he started to investigate the piece after it was already bought, after he already paid this money. So the question was, as he starts this investigation of the piece, was he really seeking proofs that the guard wasn't stolen? Was he spending this time to try to determine if, if everything was legit, everything was on the up and up, which is a pretty strange thing to do after you buy it, or was he making these contacts um, to various scholars and so on to f- try to find the kind of information that it increases an antiquity's value, the kind of stuff that he can slap on some uh, uh, posters or brochures to make this antiquity seem even more valuable. Someone with a PhD on record saying, yes, this certainly came from Persepolis and it's a fine piece what was he really trying to do? You have to ask him, but any time this happens after you've paid over a million dollars for it, I don't know. But what seems to be the case is that he was very creatively taking on board some information he was getting, but ignoring other information that were some pretty red flags. For example, he contacted Dr. Lindsay Allen at uh, King's College London. And um, Dr. Allen has a project called the Persepolis Diaspora Project. That's her website, that's her blog, check it out. Um, She is the the foremost expert on the movement of objects from Persepolis. At all times, she has a a spectacular project where using documentary evidence, she traces where these things have gone and under what um, circumstances they moved. She knows what she's talking about here. She's exactly the right person to talk about, talk to, and he had a meeting with uh, Dr. Allen about this piece. Well, Dr. Allen told him directly that the piece was stolen. So, you know, draw a line under that. But according to the dealer, and according to his his court documents, he felt she was being political about that. Because she also said that she felt any piece that was from Persepolis, um, that was outside of the country, was stolen. So he felt that that was a reason to completely discount what she was saying. Though um, it it seems like the only takeaway he took from that meeting was not her saying, this is stolen, but rather um, when she told him what part of the site it probably came from. And interestingly enough, that little bit of information from her made it on the sales brochure. So was he looking for evidence that it was legitimately his or was he looking for uh, an expert on Persepolis fragments to tell him where this thing came from so he could sell it? Um, And it's clear that the dealer didn't directly contact any of the key record holders in this. So the Oriental Institute of Chicago has an online 100% accessible image database of all of the images taken during the Persepolis excavations. That's where I got the pictures in this, available to the public freely searchable go check it out it's really cool um, and he didn't contact them and uh, he sure didn't contact the the Ministry of Culture in Iran to ask where their export permits issued pretty easy to do didn't do that there's evidence that he maybe looked at the Oriental Institute's image archive but he either ignored the pictures that had the piece in it which I showed you or he wasn't trying very hard to find it. And in the court filings, he said it was kind of hard to look at their website. Like, it's just kind of hard. <laughs> I don't know. I found this stuff. So, okay, he's trying to sell the piece. He's got that. He's priced it now at $3.6 million. Um, that's a, a pretty steady increase um, from the one point one eight, oh, was it? Yeah, just over a million that he paid for it, so that's looking pretty good. So he tried to sell it in his London gallery in an art fair in London. Didn't sell, okay. He moved it to the Netherlands, uh, to another art fair. Didn't sell that there either. That's pretty normal. has to find the right person. And then he eventually um, moves it to New York City where he tries to sell it at another art fair. Meanwhile, Dr. Allen, who had previously said, this thing is stolen, found the definitive proof that the piece was stolen, the exact pictures I showed you. So she found this, she pretty easily, it wasn't too hard to find, but this is a definitive proof that that piece was in um, Iran after Iran had claimed it. And she also knew that the piece was moving to New York City. So she alerted lawyer, lawyer Lila Aminadala, and that's uh, Leela's website, artandiplawfirm.com, definitely check it out, um, who is based in New York and is an expert in art and heritage law, and also specifically an expert in Iran's antiquities law, who's right there. Leela looked at what uh, 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 Dr. Allen supplied, she agreed, this looks pretty stolen, and she contacted the District Attorney's Office of New York, and she put Dr. Allen in, in, um, in contact with them i going to take a quick drink. And this actually is a really interesting point if you read kind of the, the de- what the dealer thinks about how things happened. Um, because very particularly, um, it seems that he feels at this point that um, when Dr. Allen found proof that this object was absolutely, definitively, 100% stolen, that she should have called them. She should have called the dealers and not gone to the authorities and to me that always seems a bit strange so she's holding proof that an absolutely stolen object is just about to be moved into the United States and the dealer feels like she should be contacting him the person who's holding this illegal object and not contacting the police it kind of portrays that as, as uh, shady dealings on her part and the part of academics. They should be telling the, the people who are holding stolen objects rather than telling police. I don't know. Seems wrong. Would we do that for any other situation? Like, I don't think so. But, you know. Everybody has their opinion. And quite conveniently, at the District Attorney's Office of New York, the Assistant District Attorney is Colonel Matthew Bogdanos, right there, who, besides being a District Attorney and a Marine, is the author of Thieves of Baghdad, one Marine's passion to recover the world's greatest stolen treasures. So he was actually um, actively involved um, in 2003 with the recovery of the stolen objects from the Iraq Museum. Um, He has degrees in, I think, art history and ancient things. He's a heritage expert, and he happens to be the district attorney of New York perfect so um they they provide the information to to the district attorney's office the district attorney's office looks over it has their own investigation they determine yeah this thing's stolen and they seize the guard so they go into the art art fair seize the thing and the district attorney's office maintains that determining that the guard was stolen was not very hard for them to do the pictures are all in line The information's all there. Um, In their complaint, they they basically said, once you have a picture, you can go to the Wikipedia page of Persepolis and figure out something's dodgy. It's not that hard. And they also maintain that the the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, AXA Art Insurance, and the dealers didn't really try to find out if this thing was stolen because they didn't want to know. They didn't want to ask that question, which is an interesting situation. So the dealers, of course, contest this. They don't want this. this they, they maintain that this object is theirs. They want it back. Well, a judge sides with the district attorney's office of New York. They agree it's stolen, and the guard is returned to Iran where, like I said this week, it's just gone on display, it's gonna go on a tour throughout the country. Um, And and basically we got this one right. A stolen object was returned to its original owners, to its country of origin, and hopefully to Persepolis, so that when people visit Persepolis, you get to see it intact. Sounds really good, usually doesn't go this well. But one thing I wanted to draw out here from the court documents of the District Attorney's Office of New York filed is that they were really critical of Canada's laws. They said some really interesting things about Canada. As I was reading through it, I started highlighting these thinking, this is a really interesting angle of things. So just looking at a few of these quotes, one of them is, Canada is a safe haven jurisdiction that permits stolen works of art to be laundered with the passage of time. Or hopelessly outdated and ineffective safe haven provisions of countries such as Switzerland and Canada. And Canada's safe haven laws deny victims the right to recover their stolen property if it was in Canada before 1978. That's pretty shocking stuff. It was actually shocked me because I, I didn't actually know exactly what Canada's laws were before I started looking into this. Can't say I'm an expert now, so don't ask deep Canadian law questions to me. But basically, the criticism that the district attorney's office has um, rests on a certain thing. So in the, in New York and the United States more generally, if a, something is stolen, you can never be the owner of it. So basically, you can never get good title to stolen property. Even if you bought it in absolute good faith and you had no idea it was stolen, it doesn't become yours. It always reverts back to the original owner because the, the the idea is that it can't e- if it can't ever be legally transferred, whoever owns it can't legally own it. Well, that seems to be a little bit different in Canada's Cultural Property Export and Import Act of 1978. Because what appears to be the case is 1978 is set as kind of a cutoff date. And more or less, with some caveats, objects that were in Canada before 1978 can be bought and sold and owned even if they were stolen. So even if the piece, in this case, has photographic proof that it was stolen from Persepolis in the 1930s, it seems to be the case that that, that there isn't going to be anybody rolling in and seizing it. Um, It seems to be the case that after 1978, whoever was holding it, at this point the museum, um, became the rightful owner of the piece in the eyes of Canada, even though it's a stolen piece. With stars with caveats, I'm not a lawyer. And interestingly enough, this 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 was an issue in this case because after the object was seized in New York, AXA insurance gets involved again and they tried to get a Quebec court to declare that they had been they were the rightful owners of the piece when it was sold. Um, It's it's a bit of a a, a muddle right there, but basically they were trying to to prove that under Canada's laws, the piece had been the museum's and thus was the, the property of the insurance company and thus the insurance company could sell it to the dealer. So they were trying to do this in a Quebec court at the same time that the piece was seized in New York. And this kind of seems to me, and I'm gonna talk about it a little more in a moment, uh, as shopping around for a jurisdiction. And it seems like art market actors do this in a number of ways. Um, They they look for favorable places for these objects to be sold, such as moving the object to New York. They often look for favorable places for the objects to be stored. Um, Historically, that has been in the free ports of Switzerland, for example, where they're not going to get raided. And at times they may be looking for shopping around for favorable jurisdictions to get court rulings and disputes like this. Um, And what the District Attorney's Office of New York brings up in their own discussion of of Canada's laws is that um, with this 1978 date, it opens up the possibility for people who want to make fake paperwork, false documentation, to make false documentation to show any object passed through Canada before 1978 and thus, uh, even if it was stolen, um, became the property of whoever held it. So obviously that's another crime falsifying documents like that, um, but in a way, the the, the way that the district attorney's office sees it is that this provision of the law just kind of opens the door for different kinds of wrongdoing. So I asked the question, does Canadian art law support white collar crime? Maybe. So what is white collar crime? So white collar crime was defined by Sutherland, uh, this is the little bit of criminology we're going to do, as crime committed by a person of respectability and high social status in the course of their occupation. So this is the person who who, uh, kind of created the idea of white collar crime academically. So it's basically, it's crime committed by professionals that take advantage of society's trust in their status and position. They're able to get away with these crimes because we respect these people. They tend to have financial motivations, they tend to be nonviolent and they tend to involve certain types of deceit and concealment. And there's all sorts of things that we consider white collar crime insider trading, embezzlement, uh, tax fraud, bribery, the, the, this kind of thing. Nonviolent, but they're really taking advantage of position. And you know what? There are a lot of white collar actors in the antiquities market. So we have dealers are white collar actors, obviously. Auction houses where um, uh, a lot of antiquities are bought and sold. Uh, collectors are white collar actors, the people who buy antiquities. Museums, we'll call all museums white collar actors. And professionals like archeologists, like myself, like restorers, um, like experts who might be looking at antiquities, also white collar actors. So we've got a lot of white collar actors in the antiquities market. And I ask you, though I'm not going to imply anything here, I'm not going to definitively state anything here, if we can consider some of their actions as crimes. Some of the things they do as being white collar crime or bordering on it. How are we on time? Going good. Um, So let me be clear for the video, I'm not saying that anybody committed a crime here um, and no one was charged with a crime in this case except the poor yoga hoser guy. So he got a conviction. That guy's the criminal. <laughs> um, nobody else has faced any charges at all, and they're, they're not going to. But one thing I can say is that white collar actors were able to manipulate the system over a span of 60 years. They were able to own and po- possess, I should say, and publicly display a very obviously stolen piece for 60 years without any recourse. And then later on, they were able to move it around the world and so on until it happened to hit New York. And there happened to be kind of a confluence of people who had the right information who could do something about it. And to take a few more quotes from the District Attorney's Office of New York, um, criminal intention and the ability to act on it is how this piece of Iran's treasured cultural heritage got to Canada in the first place. And he also says that this unspoken understanding, this conspiracy of silence, is yet another feature of the black market in so antiquities. And just kind of taking that in, thinking about these actions of white collar actors, I think these actions are better understood through a criminological framework. And this is where my project comes in. This is where my and my colleagues' project comes in. So in the past, the study of the movement of illicit antiquities has mostly been in archeology span departments, has been a bit activist that's really trying to get things returned. We've taken a different spin on things. Our focus is on criminology, in applying criminological models to the illicit trade in antiquities to see what we can find out. And I'll give you the link to our website at the end. We have um, over 130 cases up that you can read about. We have over 100 academic articles that are freely available, no paywall. Um, And it'll show you, just again, how switching things around and thinking about things criminologically can reveal interesting things about the antiquities trade. And one one aspect of things that I want to talk about is an idea of creative compliance. on the one side we have due diligence. This, is, this can be defined as um, actively trying to find out information about, in this case, an object before you buy it. Sincerely trying to find out if there's good title, if you can legally buy it if it was stolen. And this is what museums and buyers should be doing. And then there's creative compliance. And creative compliance is an idea that comes out of criminology that can basically be defined as following of the letter of the law in order to break the spirit of the law. So think tax loopholes here. So this is people who are actively looking for ways to to do exactly what they want to do, do something dodgy, while complying with the law. So I asked the question, did the dealer, did the insurer, did the museum do enough to determine that the guard was stolen? Did they do due diligence? Or did they do just enough to tick a few boxes um, while ignoring information to the contrary? So basically, were they creatively complying with their obligation to ask a few scholars or something about this piece? So, to click around on the Oriental Institute of Chicago website, but not look very far. To, to consult a database of stolen art that warns that it's incomplete. Don't know. Basically this time it didn't work out for them because they had to send the piece back. I don't want to go too far in the criminology. I wanted to focus on the story. Um, But usually this type of doing just enough to tick the boxes and not really try works in nearly every other antiquities case. The other way I see creative compliance in this is this kind of jurisdiction hunting. This, This finding a place where what you want to do doesn't fully break the law. So moving the antiquity there, selling it there, trying to get court rulings there. And basically antiquities can be moved to locations with weaker laws in order to facilitate sales. And people who are white collar actors, who have the, the money and the sophistication to know this, are able to tap into that. So in this case, the the dealer doesn't seem to have been too savvy about it, they probably shouldn't have moved it to New York, but I'm thinking, you know, they probably just got cocky because they've never been caught before. So basically this is almost like putting your money in an offshore tax haven. This is is putting your antiquities in a place where you're not going to get in trouble for them. And really this is a special case. And this is a special case not because the piece was stolen, trafficked, and laundered by white-collar actors. That's absolutely normal. Again, go on our website, 130 cases. um, That's just scratching the tip of the iceberg. You're going to find this pattern over and over again. What's rare about this case is that the right outcome actually happened. We were able to get this stuff back. It's it's now back in Iran, right there. And the only reason we were able to do that is because there were researchers who were independent, so not associated with the dealers in any way working on it. There was interested law enforcement, law enforcement agents who actually cared about it, and there were documentation. There was photographs. We could prove what we were saying. For the most part, there aren't photographs of objects that have been stolen, but we have it. And to conclude, that looting happened in the past. That was in the 1930s, but looting is still happening. So this is the site of Apamea. These are two Google Earth images, both taken in 2012. This is before, so you see this this road right here. There's actually lines of columns here. This is in Syria, and this is a couple months later after looting. So this is happening right now. Looting still happens, and the market still seems to be covering up the spoils. All those holes, the stuff had to go somewhere. Where is it? Will it surface in 15 years? Don't know. But the laws our laws often allow this behavior to happen. Our laws often uh, create a space for this kind of uh, white-collar deviance, if you want to call it. And I ask you all, is this really what we want? Is this what we want out of our laws? Um, And I say we don't have to accept this kind of no-information situation. As this case shows, even objects that were stolen in the 1930s have ample documentation for us to look into. We should push for research and demand change because protecting our heritage is our responsibility. And in one tiny epilogue, if any of you are thinking, what can I do now? Um, there is another Persian guard stolen from the very same panel as this Persian guard and um, at the same time. And it is in the Royal Ontario Museum. We know it's stolen, same evidence in this case. So why hasn't it been to return to Iran? Let's look at it. Let's see, this is the other one. That's the, the one in the Royal Ontario Museum. This is our one from before. And here's this one. See this kind of diagonal break, diagonal break. So breakage that goes up like this, breakage that goes up like this. Perhaps, as Canadian citizens, you might feel inspired to email the ROM <laughs> and ask them why it's still there. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for joining us today. For more on the Department of History, its programs and its events, please visit carleton.ca slash history. I'm Sean Graham.